0: Welcome to a bonus edition of Behind the Mic with Audiophile Magazine. I'm Joe Reed.
1: As a junior of exceptional promise, he had been sent to Egypt for a year in order to improve his Arabic, and found himself attached to the High Commission as a sort of scribe to await his first diplomatic posting. But he was already conducting himself as a young secretary of legation, fully aware of the responsibilities of future office. Only somehow today, It was rather more difficult than usual to be reserved so exciting had the fish drive become he had in fact quite forgotten about his once crisp tennis flannels and college blazer and the fact that the wash of the bilge rising through the floorboards had toe-capped his white plimsolls with a black stain in egypt one seemed to forget oneself continually like this
0: you just heard actor and newly named golden voice nicholas bolton Narrating Mount Olive, it's book three of the Alexandria Quartet by Lawrence Durrell. Known for narrating classic literature, works by Dickens, Dostoevsky, and Wilkie Collins, for example, Nicholas Bolton has created the voices for scores of memorable characters that keep listeners, like me, mesmerized. In fact, it was his brilliant narration of David Copperfield that kicked off our series audiobook break. He's an accomplished stage, screen, and audio performer. You may have seen him in Shakespeare in Love or Game of Thrones or perhaps on stage in the Wolf Hall trilogy for the Royal Shakespeare Company. And if you're a gamer, you've surely heard that unmistakable voice in any number of video games, for example, in Dragon Age as Hawk. And of course, we know Nicholas as an outstanding audiobook narrator celebrated for the pure quality of his voice, his facility with character, and his unerring instinct for storytelling. He has performed over a hundred audiobooks, with, as I mentioned, a great focus on classics and historical romances, where that voice has caused many hearts to flutter. But like all Golden Voices, Nicholas has great range and effortlessly includes fantasy, history, biography, and contemporary fiction in his arsenal of storytelling, winning 23, yes, 23 earphones awards from Audiophile Magazine. So little wonder he's been named a 2023 Golden Voice. Now I had done an in-depth interview with Nicholas in 2021 when we launched Audiobook Break. We discussed narrating Dickens, the classics, historical romance, and of course, audiobook narration more generally. And we'll have a link to that interview in our show notes. So today, we're catching up with Nick, asking him about some of his recent projects and, of course, getting his take on being named a Golden Voice. I began our conversation, though, by asking Nick to remind us what drew him to theatre originally.
1: I just always found it a huge amount of fun. There's something indefinable about it. It's just the atmosphere of it and the, the terror of it something to do with that sense of free falling just before you walk on stage that is absolutely terrifying but then it kind of mutates into something when you're out there and when you combine that with your you know professional work when you've you've done all your rehearsals and all of your research and you've learnt your lines most importantly it turns into something really kind of seducing
0: now how did you move into narrating audiobooks?
1: Oh, well, I kind of fell into it I mean I've always been predominantly audio actor I suppose I started uh, my career on the radio drama company for the BBC which naturally made me lean towards looking into you know all the different art forms of voice acting I suppose and I was I was just asked to do uh, an audio book, and I, and I had a crack at it and found it Quite daunting and, and, and not a little exhausting. I mean, it's, it's it's tough work, but enjoyable as well. I mean, there's something about immersing yourself in, in a story and all its characters that is just really, really nice.
0: How do you prepare for narrating a book?
1: Well, I suppose there's different ways. I mean, I have a, a, a kind of a, a different tool set for, the diff- for each different kind of work that I'm doing. For example, if we've got, say, I mean, I've done some Dickens in the past and, and Wilkie Collins, a lot of 19th century classics, for example which I may or may not have read beforehand. And in that case, you know, I'll do all my research online, I'll look and find out all the information that I can, and then I will skim as fast, as, as, as efficiently as I can through the book to set all the characters and, and, and plot points. And then I'll li- I'd like to keep the rest of it
0: as fresh as possible. You're best known for narrating classic literature and historical romance, but you're also doing a good bit of history, like *The Bounty* or *His Majesty's Airship*. And I just wonder what the difference is between narrating fiction and nonfiction
1: for you. Well, I suppose when you're narrating fiction, you you can let your imagination run wild, and depending on the on the style of writing, you can you can fit yourself to how large the characters you want to make them with factual concerns historical documents and so on you're a little more constrained to keep it as as real and as listenable as you can i mean that's not to say that when you're doing fiction you can just really let rip all the time because that's that would be very difficult to listen to i'm sure but with as again with you know with characters that pop up in in for example any of dickens's works they're so colorfully written that most of the work's done for you and if you just lend yourself to it and bring in your own experience and you can create something which, which hopefully is, is the sort of thing that the listeners want.
0: Let's talk about the voices that you create by talking about a recent fantasy that you narrated, A Rake of His Own, which has such a wide range of characters from human to fae to everything in between.
1: Marius had taken only two steps inside the makeshift pub before deciding he was going to strangle his cousin. Oh, come on, M. Caro had wheedled last week. It'll be fun, just a casual get-together with a few friends. You've been hiding in that greenhouse for too long. You'll start growing roots yourself soon. Her resigned expression was what had done for him. In it, he'd seen that she took his refusal as a foregone conclusion. He never did anything fun anymore. He'd been moping about for months now for reasons she didn't know. She was worried about him. Not that she'd said any of that aloud, but he'd heard her thinking it, so of course he'd said, yes, actually, he would come along, thank you very much for asking, and damn the probably dire telepathic consequences. Also, he had not been moping, he'd just been keeping busy, and certainly not avoiding anything, or any one. Not that he'd said that aloud either. "'You're just going to stand there, mate?' With a start, Marius got out of the doorway, mumbling an apology.
0: How do you land on a voice and what's the process for determining a voice for any given character?
1: Oh, I wish I knew. I mean, it, mostly it's it's instinctive, I think. Um, <laughs> you, you get a feel. I mean, you've got all the, the, the pointers in the text as to potentially what class they are, what social class, how what kind of education they may have had. And then, of course, the character traits as to whether they're a kind of heroic character, an ingratiating character, or a just downright evil character. Uh, and then, you know, you, you look at that and, and, and make your choices, I suppose. And I, I find myself doing the voices before I've decided on them. So it comes out, and if it's right, it's right. And if it doesn't, then I'll go in and kind of fine-tune.
0: Okay, I hear that. But you recently narrated The Charterhouse of Parma, which had to have been daunting. That is such a sprawling story. And there are a lot of voices to create and to keep straight.
1: Absolutely. I mean, it's tough, you know, when you've got a whole army of different subsidiary characters popping in and saying their piece. Um, In that respect, you know, it's a mistake to go too far into broader characters for the minor kind of pop-ups. You just, again, you've got to kind of play it by ear and, and, and hope that, uh, that that you can remember down the line. I mean, of course, it's recorded, so you can always spool back and listen to what you did in chapter one when you're, you know, 500 pages in.
0: What have you narrated in the past couple of years, Nick, that's really stood out for you?
1: Well, I think the, the Alexandria Quartet was, was hugely satisfying in that respect and an immense joy to do. It was kind of something that you could really immerse yourself in. And also, as the, the way that Durrell writes is, you know, a lot closer to the way you and I speak nowadays, made the job a lot easier. Yeah. When you're doing the kind of verbal acrobatics that are required to do Dickens or also some of the 19th century Russian literature that I do with all those extraordinary names and patronymics and, and the like, it's actually quite refreshing to be able to just speak a little English. <laughs>
0: But the Alexandria Quartet had to have been a challenge. Four books that concern the same characters, but each of the several narrators tells the novel's story from their own viewpoint, and they're writing at different points in time. How, in the name of God, did you approach that?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Um, Again, it seems like a cop-out, but the, the writer does most of the work for you. And and with books that are as kind of atmospheric as as the ones that, that Lawrence Durrell wrote, your choices are kind of almost made for you. You can see them. You can see them sort of almost standing out of the text at you. And if the voice fits, you kind of know it. If it doesn't, well, then, you know, you've got to have another crack. And again, with that, there was a lot of subtlety in, in choosing the different characters in that. And I think that's key. You need to make the choices that are going to fit with the theme and the the rhythm and the feel of the of the, of the piece that you're narrating uh, and the rest again is, is as i say it's it's instinctive i think how long had i been away i could hardly compute though calendar time gives little enough indication of the eons which separate oneself from another one day from another and all this time i had been living there truly in the alexandria of my heart's mind and page by page heartbeat by heartbeat i had been surrendering myself to the grotesque organism of which we had all once been part victors and vanquished alike an ancient city changing under the brush strokes of thoughts which besieged meaning clamouring for identity somewhere there on the black thorny promontories of africa the aromatic truth of the place lived on the bitter unchewable herb of the past the pith of memory.
0: And I also think, given how long the listener is going to be with a character, it has to be a voice we can hear for a while, too, I would imagine.
1: Absolutely, but then, you know, in that case, I can only cross my fingers. and hope. <laughs> because, you know, it's, again, you know, listening to, recording an audiobook, listening to an audiobook, to listening to a performance is a very intimate experience. It's just you and the one person who's listening. So, if you're, if, you know, if you're not to their
0: taste, that's, there's nothing I can do about that. No, but I mean, you can have a strident character, but if it's a main character, if the voice is too strident, it can put the listener off. I think that's what I'm saying.
1: Absolutely. That's very true. So yes, you know, you've hit the nail on the head there. I I like to keep central characters, antagonists and protagonists as close to me as possible. That's a tough one.
0: (laughs) (laughs) But what, what about the narrative voice itself, Nick, as opposed to the voice of characters? How do you sort of settle on that?
1: Well, that is purely me. You wear so many different kind of masks when you're, when you're recording an audiobook. You're inhabiting the world of each different character. But as the narrator, as the storyteller, you are, you know, you have the God's eye view. And so that has to be as neutral as possible, I think. And from that springboard, you can jump off into all the different host of characters that,
0: that, that come your way. How is acting with your voice different from having your physicality to use to create a character?
1: Well, for one thing, I don't have room in my booth to flail my arms around, so <laughs> that's quite lucky. Um, I think, again, it's come from a position of telling a story to one person. And that's very different to, for example, telling a story on stage when you have an audience
0: of hundreds, sometimes thousands.
1: Telling a story to one person is, is it's an intimate experience, and it's, it's lovely. I love it.
0: Theatre is so collaborative. You're guided by a director. You're working with other actors. And with audiobooks, you're in a booth, and perhaps you work with a director or a producer, but mostly you're doing it all yourself. Can you talk a little bit about the difference about doing it alone and doing a play in the company of others?
1: Well, I suppose recording audiobooks on your own, you know, it's um, it'd be quite a lonely experience. It's lovely to have a producer on the end of the line and uh, over Skype or whatever. Occasionally, I might be asked to go and record in a, a studio in London or somewhere, and and there are other human beings there, which is amazing. So, yeah, it can be a, a pretty isolating experience. It has to be by its, you know, its own nature. And, of course, whenever I, I get to do uh, any pieces of, of theatre with a larger cast, for example, most recently, I completed the Wolf Hall trilogy by the late Dame Hilary Mantel with a cast of over 20. It's like walking from the Sahara right into the centre of Manhattan.
0: It's fantastic. <laughs> Pacing is so important to the audio experience, especially in histories like His Majesty's Airship. What's your process for figuring out the pacing? And especially with that one, I mean, you even have to include footnotes, which you did very nicely, I might add.
1: No, absolutely. Um, Well, my producer did a great job on on making that as easy as possible for me by uh, highlighting the relevant passages and and inserting them in the script for me, which is very handy. But for for His Majesty's Airship, it's a really interesting story anyway. Uh, It seemed that every chapter almost ended on a cliffhanger. You know, you know what's going to happen if you know the history of this airship, and no spoilers here. But nevertheless, the whole momentum of the story just, just keeps driving forward. It's fascinating. How are they going to do it? What's going to happen? And How's the disaster going to unfold? And so on. So, yeah, it was a fun book to narrate. Despite his Cheltenham manners and ministerial calm, Christopher Birdwood Thompson is a man obsessed... He has been the driving force behind a scheme to connect the far-flung outposts of the British Empire through the new medium of the air. He has taken firm hold of the National Building Programme, whose purpose is to show the world that it can be done. Flying R-101 to India will be the proof. R-101 is his baby, or perhaps more accurately the spawn of his gauzy, rainbow-inflected vision of a future in which fleets of lighter-than-air ships float serenely through blue imperial skies, linking everything British in a new space-time continuum. Travellers will journey tranquilly in airliners to the Earth's remotest parts, Thompson has written. Visit the archipelagos in southern seas, cruise round the coasts of continents, strike inland surmount lofty mountain ranges and follow rivers as yet half unexplored from mouth to source
0: well you had so many different accents you had to deal with Uh, you had some French you had some German you had an American accent here and there even Winston Churchill but when I listened to it I was really impressed because you really just suggested it rather than jumped in with both feet which I think was important for that book
1: yeah I think that was key um, we We had the discussion I had the discussion with my producer about Winston Churchill, and you know we were thinking, we shall fight them on the beaches <laughs> where we 're going to go all the way down that line uh, and I thought no that would that was a, that was a, definitely a red herring so yes, a hint of an accent here and there, not too much character, and that kind of served the story because the characters were they 're real people. You have to honor the the memory of of these people, and you know some of them didn 't survive and come out the end of it. Um, so, yeah, in a book like that, a hint of it is good, not too much.
0: Do you have books that stay with you?
1: Well, there are maybe one or two, I suppose. A lot of the time there's so much text that you are assimilating and, and putting down onto tape or onto hard drive or whatever you want to call it. And there's only so much information your brain can hold it before it wipes. And I think <laughs> I've got a, ro- a rolling deletion system that goes on in my head and sometimes two weeks later I can't remember what I've recorded. Uh, But definitely some of the classics have been fantastic. I mean, it's it's tough with, for example, Wilkie Collins. uh, You know, I've recorded a fair bit of Wilkie Collins for Naxos audiobooks, and it's hard to remember many of the plot lines in those. Um, Dickens, on the other hand, seems to seems to fix in the memory a lot more clearly.
0: What about characters? Have there been any that are hard to let go of or who won't let go of you?
1: They're they're all there somewhere, and when you go back to a book or a piece of text that you may have already narrated, they kind of pop up and say hello again. The ones that are there that sort of exist beyond that, I mean, someone like, for example, Uriah Heep in David Copperfield, his character, is the way he's written is so sublime and it's so kind of creepy, it just lives. He lives on his own. So I suppose the question is, when his voice came out of me, was it me doing Uriah Heep or was it Uriah Heep operating me? ''Oh, really, Master Copperfield, I mean, Mr Copperfield,'' said Uriah. ''To see you waiting upon me is what I never could have expected. ''But one way and another, so many things happen to me which I never could have expected. ''I am sure in my humble station that it seems to rain blessings on my head.'' You have heard something I dare say of a change in my expectations, Master Copperfield, I should say Mr Copperfield
0: and I wonder if being an audiobook narrator has affected the way you read for pleasure.
1: I don't think so. reading for performance is is one thing it's an exercise in. It's an exercise in itself, I suppose. Um, reading for pleasure, it's, you just don't have to worry about whether you're going to get it done on on schedule, on the deadline or anything. You can just allow yourself to be taken over by a story. And I think recording an audiobook, you've got to have a really good mix of that. You need to be able to engage with the text, but also uh, have your technical head on as well. Make sure that, you're not, that you haven't clipped any of your levels and made a terrible boo-boo with the microphone pointing the wrong
0: way, for example. What's the best part of audiobook narration for you?
1: I think getting to the end of a script is extraordinary. I mean, when you face a wall of text, for example, I mean, some of the unabridged books I've done have have run into thousands of pages and tens of hours. It can be quite daunting. And when you get over the hill and you're on the home stretch, there's this feeling of lightning that takes over you. Uh, You just, almost your feet are almost not touching the floor. And the last word on the last page is just uh, it's bliss (laughs) you know whether you've had a good experience or a bad experience recording it it's hugely satisfying when you get to the end and go there we've done it
0: if you had to sum up the attributes of a good narrator what would you say Nick
1: imagination good technique training is essential uh, I think and a sense of joy
0: you have been named a Golden Voice by Audiophile Magazine. So many congratulations, which I sh- Thank you very much. I should have said at the beginning of this. What does that mean for you to be named a Golden Voice?
1: Well, it's a huge honor. It's just wonderful. I mean, Audiophile Magazine have have been batting for my team for many years now. You know, I've been really lucky enough to to have been awarded so many earphones awards by them, which in themselves is is terrific. But to be inducted into the society of some some of the actors that I that I most admire is a real honor and quite a surprise.
0: Well, I think it is so richly deserved. And I was so happy when Robin told me that you were one of our golden voices this year because I listened to your books like a mad woman. So thank you for many, many hours of happy listening.
1: Absolutely my pleasure.
0: That's actor and one of Audiophile Magazine's 2023 Golden Voices, Nicholas Bolton. Remember, we'll also have a link to our 2021 interview with him in our show notes. You can find reviews for Nick's narration of David Copperfield, the Alexandria Quartet, His Majesty's Airship, A Rake of His Own, and all of his other titles at audiophilemagazine.com. And follow Behind the Mic wherever you get your podcasts. Then leave us a rating on Apple because it helps other people who love audiobooks to find us. This has been a bonus edition of Behind the Mic. I'm Jill Reed. Good listening.